You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, Canada. How's everybody doing? Coast to coast to coast on another week. I hope you had a good long weekend. I am in Ottawa, as you know, and we were in the middle of that terrible storm, short-lived, terrible storm that across our province of Ontario and parts of Quebec has killed 10 people. Power outages for hundreds of thousands of people. My power in my house still, we are still have no power. That's the least of it. So, so we've, this is day three for no power for us. So, which is fine. You know, you, people have power, take our freezing, you know, stuff from our freezer. You throw out food. Um, we can light our stove. We have a gas stove, so you can light that. We'd have no hot water, so it is bracing to take the cold water. But so what? Is it inconvenient? Yeah. Three, four days. I don't know when. It, they say it could take another day or two. We don't know. But boy, there are people much worse off. And we're going to speak to the mayor of Ottawa. We're going to speak to um, the councillor from Navin, which is outside of Ottawa. And I can tell you, it is absolutely brutal there. I know friends of mine had trees that punctured into their house, crushed their house, crushed their car. Uh, It's everywhere. Uh, You know, you can't pass streets in our neighborhood and many neighborhoods all over. And it was weird. And I remember I, my wife and I were in the car and we both, and we got that. I'm sure like many people, like everybody in the province got that. What sounds like an Amber alert. You think, Oh, oh, an Amber alert. Your phone starts beeping with that noise, the alarm. And then it said thunderstorm coming, stay inside, be careful. And we thought to ourselves, are they really using the Amber Alert system now for a mere thunderstorm? We're very used to storms here. It's not the winter. It's not a nice storm. How bad could it be? And then it started and we arrived home. And I noticed as the rain started, it was before the thunder and lightning that, and here's where you're going to see what a bonehead I am. Um, it starts to pour rain. I thought, oh my God, on one part of my house, uh, one of the eaves troughs I noticed immediately was going to overflow because it was blocked. And I thought I'd clean them, but I guess something had jammed up down the downspout. And I, I ran outside as it started to rain and I grabbed, this is the moment of, of, of sheer and utter stupidity. I grabbed my large aluminum ladder And the rain just, like, it happened fast. I thought, I'll just quickly get this done before the storm. And it just suddenly, boom, and then a big, loud clap of thunder as I'm clutching the aluminum ladder. And my wife bangs on the window and gives me that, how big an ass are you face? You know that face? How big an ass? Are you nuts? Drop. And, of course, I dropped the blank ladder and and got back inside and then the storm just walloped uh and it was just mayhem and then our neighborhood and everyone's neighborhood was out and now we're still out of power but we are the lucky ones a tree did not hit our house there are 150,000 Ontarians right now with no power there are 187 poles down 
there are, as I say, throughout Quebec and Ontario, 10 deaths related. Hydro One says there's uh, 1,400 broken poles, 200 damaged transformers. Hydro Quebec, 133,000 customers without power this morning. At one point from Gatineau to Quebec City, it was 550,000. And... I don't know. They've restored about 106,000 customers as of 10 a.m. this morning in Ottawa. We're not one of them, and many people aren't. Bryce Conrad, the CEO and the president of Hydro Ottawa, said it could be another two to four days to reconnect. And this means that this is worse than the 1998 ice storm, worse than the 2018 tornado. Here is Bryce Conrad, the CEO of Hydro Ottawa. Our own service territory, our own distribution system has just been has been crushed. Um, you know, we've put 187 poles down. 187 poles down is more than we suffered in the ice storm. It's more than we suffered in the tornado. Collectively, it's more polls than we put down in a year. So this is as bad as it gets. As bad as it gets. Now, we, you know, every neighborhood got it bad. Clarence Rockland, the mayor of Clarence Rockland, it was, a, it was a, they declared a state of emergency. It's a disaster there. Mario Zanth joined 580 CFRA, my colleagues on it this morning. Listen to what the mayor of Clarence Rockland, again, just outside of Ottawa, said about his town. We have over 200 poles that are down just in our municipality alone. But we're so fortunate to have uh, a great crew with uh, Hydro, and I think uh, New Brunswick Hydro is, is coming up as well, Idol uh, Quebec. So we've got a, a lot of great partners to be able to get everyone up and running as fast as possible. So, so it's scary. It happens so fast. And this is the moment where you think, oh, they're doing... Then you, I re- my wife and I realized, first of all, when they send out a warning for a thunderstorm, listen to it. This sense of invulnerability people have, we have, I had, it's really remarkable how quick things change. And we've been through floods and fight like, like, you know, it's not like there's a first natural disaster or, but first of all, the speed of it, the ferocity of it, the, those people who are prepared with a generator are very smart. Those of us without a generator are just, you know, we're sitting there. And it was scary for some people. Chris Nguyen of Brabatandale Farms in Navin, we're going to go to Navin next, spoke to my great colleague uh, Christy Cameron on 580 CFRA in Ottawa, and, and Chris described the uh, aftermath of the storm. I bolted to, to that location, and, uh, and I, you know, I hugged my family, and I hugged my, my employees, and I kind of broke down you know, for, for about five minutes before we said, okay, yeah, you know what, we got to get, get going here. Uh, we got animals that are, that are in there that we don't know, you know what the integrity of the structures are. And so every, everybody was accounted for. There's no injuries from our end, luckily. But when he's talked about the animals, think about it. In rural areas and people who have farm animals, listen to Chris. There was no power. There was no ventilation. There was no water for the animals. So it was very pressing to get these animals out. You know, our priority is to make sure that our animals are treated like queens. And it's very, it's very hard on those, on those situations to, uh, to keep things together. Now, later in the show, I'm going to ask if you are in Quebec or Ontario to call us how you're dealing with it, what your experience was, are you prepared for a storm? Do you think this is the this is the beginning? Like, is this a wake-up call for some people? Hey, I got to be a little more prepared. Like, at our house, we're prepared for certain things. You know, we have our emergency kit. We have our blankets. We have our water supplies. We have food. We have flashlights. We have candles. We have a certain amount of prep. 
I like to keep the car gassed up. A lot of people couldn't get gas. I, I'm I'm a bit of a nerd on making sure that we always have a full tank. But and I I remember when my kids were young, I'll get a generator. Didn't get the generator. Stupid. So, because we live in a kind of a downtown area, you think you're invulnerable. You're not. So later in the show, text me at 71010 or call me 1-855-633-1010, I I do want to hear some storm stories. I want to hear how you survived. I want to hear how you're coping. I want to hear how you're rebuilding. I want to hear what happened. I want to hear how you're preparing. But we've got a great show for you. Uh, We are going to go to the Ottawa City Councillor Catherine Kitts next in Cumberland Ward, which includes Navin, the hardest, maybe the hardest hit spot. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, I'll tell you who else is on the show, though, outside of Stormwatch. Um, I spoke to the former Prime Minister of the UK, Tony Blair, who knew Vladimir Putin extremely well, uh, who visited St. Petersburg when Putin was first elected. So he got to know Putin, and, and I asked him, how do you stop Putin now? You know the guy. You met him many times. Is he gone? Is he mad? So Tony Blair, the former prime minister of the UK, will join us. And then if you're living in Quebec, and if you're not living in Quebec, you've got to know the controversy around this Bill C-98, this this law that many Anglos feel like it is aimed at picking on Anglos. And there's been protests. And the representative of the government, Christopher Skeet, joins me. And we have a... We, you got to know about this. This is really fundamental stuff. But let's take a break. I want to drill down on the storm. We're going to go to the worst hit area in the province. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. has hit Ontario badly and hit Quebec badly, but nowhere maybe as badly as in Cumberland Ward, which is outside of, well, sort of on the suburbs of Ottawa. It includes Navin. And Navin has been, almost just looks like it's been blown up. Um, Ottawa City Councilor Catherine Kitts joins us, uh, and she's been touring the damage. It's just remarkable there. First of all, thanks for for doing this, Catherine. How are the residents there? And and as we're broadcast across the country here, Catherine, give us a sense of how badly your community's been hit. Hi, Evan. Yeah, thanks. uh, Thanks for for looking out for us. Yeah, uh, I'm actually calling you right now from... uh, one of the businesses in my ward that's been impacted is a kennel with, you know, lots of damage on the property. But unfortunately, the the storm seemed to kind of pick up speed as it traveled east. Um, really devastating, particularly the villages of Navin, where I live, um, and Sarsfield. Um, and just real devastation. You know, a, a ton of agricultural properties impacted Barns flattened. There was, you know, a real effort to get livestock out um, as quickly as possible right after the storm hit. Um, and then a lot of properties with um, trees, you know, on the houses, on cars, um, so much debris. The cleanup effort in this area is going to be lengthy. Just, so describe what exactly happened. Uh, I was speaking to Catherine Kitts, who's the counselor for this ward. All of us experienced it. Um, in the area, but it seems like, you know, it's so weird, right? One, one house gets 
you know, trees everywhere, one street just blowing, another one totally fine. Uh, Navin, what happened during the storm? Have you been able to piece together what exactly happened in those sort of crazy 20 minutes? Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you're describing. It's it's very bizarre, and I'm I'm absolutely astounded that um, more pe- people weren't injured or, or killed because, you know, stories of, of barns collapsing with people in it. Um, but just as you're describing, I mean, I was at a, a property in Sarsfield yesterday where the, you know, the, the whole backyard was a mess, multiple, you know, really mature trees down, damage to structures, but it looks like you could have a barbecue on the patio. Um, and, and there's countless stories like that. Um, you know, the, the area just south of Navin, VARS, you know, lost power, but, but relatively okay. Um, and then just north, um, you know, into Orleans, again, some damage, but, but nothing like we saw here. And even in my little subdivision, uh, my street was particularly impacted. Um, Is that right? Even, yeah, even though, you know, th- th- there's damage everywhere, but you, you kind of come down my street and you go, whoa, what happened here? So initially my neighbor said, you know, we thought that a tornado hit the street. We didn't realize how big the storm was um, until, until much later. Yeah. And, and t- remember we had the tornadoes in 2018 around that neighborhood, like around those areas. And, and we know what that's like. This was different, right? It didn't seem like a tornado. It didn't even seem, you know, there's the hail. It seemed, you know, we're used to storms. Then it just obviously some crazy gusts of wind and big trees snapping. How many trees do you think went down and how many homes are damaged? Oh my God. I mean, I can't, can't count the number of trees, thousands for sure. Um, thousands. Yeah. Even, even just, you know, on my property, probably 30 down. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, if it, some of the streets that you travel down, um, particularly in Navin, you know, the, the debris that we're piling, we've been telling people to pile debris close to the road, you know, the city is going to have to come in and clear it. It's going to be, you know, probably a multi-week cleanup effort um but the the just the pile of debris you know is taller taller than me um so yeah no thousands of, of trees down and and not just you know small trees or or dying trees like really mature yeah. trees completely uprooted you can see the entire root system i've never seen uh, anything like it not just and some of them snap like you think they'd be struck by lightning but they haven't yeah. been uh, which is weird. I, I'm speaking to the uh, Ottawa City Councilor Catherine Kitts, who represents Cumberland Ward, which includes a couple of the hard-hit areas like Navin. Um, after the break, uh, if you are in Quebec or Ontario and have experienced a storm and have a storm story, one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. I'd love to hear from you what what damage or how you survived it, or if you're still without power, or how this has changed you. And 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 Catherine. A lot of people you know, you know, there are people say, oh, thank goodness I have a generator. Like they were ready. Almost mm-hmm. everyone I've spoken to with a generator says, I got the generator because I expected an ice storm. It's all yeah. about. The, and then all of a sudden it's like, wait, it's May. It's yeah. the May 2-4 week. This is not the time of year I thought I'd need my generator. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people got generators um, back at the ice storm and have kind of kept them around. But as you said, not expecting to need it now um but you know i mean i do have to say like when you're talking about you know how it's changed you like the the community outpouring the neighbors helping neighbors i mean kind of in that that rural way you know it feels like heads down everybody just getting the work done leaning on each other um and outpouring of support from other areas in in the community have been great i mean i i feel like even though um my heart's broken for a lot of families and businesses that have lost a lot i feel in a way, I've, I've never been prouder to, to yeah. live in this community, represent this community. 
Catherine Kitts, let, let's talk about what some people lost. Are our businesses down? Give, give me a sense of, of the damage assessment there in terms of uh, what your community has lost in the storm. Yeah, well, again, you know, the agricultural community has been devastated in this area, you know, not just, you know, one or two um, barns down, multiple um, dozens and dozens, um, you know, and, and in some cases, you know, multiple families, you know, different different farms belong to the same family um, down. So so a lot of devastation in that community. And then, um, as I said, I'm just here at, at a kennel. Um, in Navin where, uh, you know, they've, they've received significant damage. Luckily, they're able to still operate. They still got animals here, um, and none of the animals were injured, but a lot of kennels in the area. Any so sort of None of the animals. So I just want to stop you. You said none of the animals are injured, just to be clear. Not here. Not okay, here. good. I mean, there was, That's good news. There was some, um, unfortunately, a little bit of, you know, some loss of livestock, but but given given the impact shocking number of um you know animals survived you know we were able to get the majority of of livestock out i have a friend of mine the the barn collapsed on the cows people were you know on their hands and knees getting them out um and a relatively small loss of life considering the impact but again you know there's other agricultural properties in the area um businesses you know um mechanics that kind of thing a lot of destruction um and and uh, damage to to equipment as well yeah, Catherine. So the long cleanup. What do you tell? And by the way, when do you think power gets back to your community? I don't know. I mean, Hydro One's restoration um, is is <laughs> saying this evening. Uh, it's it's been saying that for a couple of days. I am really doubtful, at least for my area. I mean, as, as early as yesterday, there was still um, you know trees on power lines. So I think that's a little bit optimistic. I know that they're working flat out, and and some areas have come back online. I know. Areas of Cumberland Village um, got their power back. My area straddles Hydro One and Hydro Ottawa, um, so you know Carlsbad Springs, Hydro Ottawa. They they've been you know not giving a specific timeline, just saying later this week. Can I just uh, ask you as a counselor, like, and people keep asking me, why don't we bear? I know it's expensive, but over you know fifty years, you can amortize the cost. Why aren't we burying hydro lines? Like it's twenty twenty two. Um, we know this is going to happen in winter and spring. The store, you know, it costs what twenty percent more to establish them, especially in any new builds or renovation. It just seems crazy that we don't have buried lines. Yeah, I mean, I think that might be something we have to look at. I think you know, every time there's a disaster, you kind of do a post mortem and lessons learned, and, and change comes from that. And unfortunately, it has to take something significant. Um, but you know, that's a great example because there's an area in Navin where the, the lines are buried and they've got power. And then two streets right. over, you know, they, they've got aerial lines um, and they're out. So uh, different impacts depending on where you are. Well, different impacts depending on the infrastructure as well. Uh, Catherine exactly. Kitts, the Ontario, uh, sorry, the Ottawa City Councilor. Catherine, um, listen, uh, all the best to your community. I know it's been a, a long, like me, still no power, but you're, you're, you're moving on and, and helping your community. And I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us across the country. Catherine, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Evan. That's Ottawa City Councilor Catherine Kitts. And, man, uh, no sleep for Councillor Kitts, I can tell you that. Um, I'd love your stories on this. Um, we're gonna, we've are gonna we got lots coming up. We've got the former uh, British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, standing by. We're going to drill into uh, Bill 96 in Quebec. Uh, and, and isn't it really an attack on rights, especially rights of Anglos and minorities? The government there says no. But coming up, how are you dealing with the aftermath of the storm? And then I'll give you some breaking news about uh, Canada sending ammunition to Ukraine, one 1010 and 7 There's lots coming up. Stay with us.
your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, lots going on. I think I just jumped the gun there. Lots going on. Now, welcome back to the show. Uh, Tony Blair standing by, the former uh, PM of uh, the UK. We're going to drill down with a really hot debate about Bill 96 in Quebec, which is so controversial. So many protests about it. If you don't know what it is, is it an attack on Anglo rights? I interview and debate um, the representative of the Quebec government, Christopher Skeet, about that, and, and, and we really try to understand it. But I've asked you at one 633 or 7-10-10 to ask how are you dealing with the aftermath of the storm. And I've got some incredible calls, and i got some breaking news for you as well, but hang in there. Um, I want to get to Bob. Bob, you called in. Uh, you're in the beautiful uh, city of Peterborough. Um, you were on a motorcycle. What happened, Bob? Well, I was uh, riding along on Highway 7 just, just uh, east of Peterborough, heading back home and I could see the dark clouds coming and just as fast as like I saw it from the distance and all of a sudden it was I drove just drove into a wall of rain and wind right and it was like someone blindfolded me just threw me off the bike and uh, I just skidded down highway 7 and um, like I had slowed down quite a bit uh, and a nice young couple stopped and helped, but you couldn't see anything, like nothing. It was like it was as if you were blindfolded. It happened fast, didn't it, man? Like, like, and, and I'm the same with you. First, you're like, you don't want to have time to adjust. I've been through this, but this was like someone tapping you on the shoulder, and you turn around and you get hit in the face. It was like that kind of yeah. whoa. Yeah, exactly. And then. I got home uh, just outside, just slightly north of, of Peterborough, a little hamlet called Bridge North on Shimong Lake, and it's been decimated. Like, there, we still have no power. There are trees that are 150 years old, three feet round, mm. that are hanging on telephone lines and, and hydro lines. And we had a huge maple tree in our backyard, and half of it halfway up was split in half, and it went across my backyard onto my neighbor's garage. Jeez. First of I all, can, can I just, just Bob, before we get to that, the pro- thank God you're okay. Like, when you wiped out on your bike, were you in leathers? Like, are you okay? Because that in and of itself is bloody dangerous. Wow, yeah, Evan. I, I was not in leathers. I was I uh, stupid enough because it was so hot and sunny. Just previous to that, I was in jeans and a T-shirt. Oh, my gosh. And, and uh, I, I, I have one little nick on my thumb, and I broke some ribs. But other than that, like virtually nothing, like nothing. God, you're lucky, man. Because yeah, like when you're, when you're on a bike, it, you know, everything's good. And then all suddenly, like, you know, the margin of error is basically zero. And, and now you're – but, you know, I bet for you, and, and I got so many calls lined up, but I'm really glad you called. I bet you look at all the damage, but you were so close to a much worse situation. Just the fact that you're up and about walking, you probably like, you know what? The property damage is one thing. If I, if you're walking around, you're just lucky. Like, that, there's the grace of oh, God, yeah. right? Yeah, no, for sure. And, and uh, by the way, Evan, great job on CTV covering the truckers' convoy. My wife and I watched you all the time. You were fabulous. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you. Hey, uh, uh, just one last thing. Thank you so much for calling, and I hope you're okay. Safe riding out there, and I hope your your, your community gets through this. I know it will, but that's Bob 
Uh, man, what a call. Uh, Jennifer's in Montreal. Uh, Jen, go go for it. Yeah, hi. Um, I just want to share my experience. I didn't have, I'm in Montreal, and the storm kind of went over us, so we don't have damage regarding this storm, but I was living in Fort McMurray, Alberta in 2016. Is that right? And oh, um, on the beginning of May, after a very mild winter, we had a, a very bad uh, wildfire. And, um, you know, that happened within a flash, too. You know, we're at work and, once, and, you know, within an hour, we're driving home to save our pets from uh, our houses and any valuable we have. So ever since that experience, I now make sure I have an emergency kit ready. I put all my valuable documents into, like, passports, birth certificates, anything, any document that I would need to save, um, I have in a binder ready to go to take with me now. Um, so, so you're ready. Like, you've been there. You're ready to go. Oh, yeah, I'm ready. I think it's just really important for people just to always have, make sure, even in their cars, make sure they have, you know, an emergency kit in their car, a blanket. You never know what situation you're going to be in and how long you'll be stranded for. So, yeah, I just think it's, it's really important. I, I'm glad people... You know, not a lot of people got hurt, um, but I think it's an important experience. So they're so we're not so jaded, and we're aware that these yeah. things can happen in such a short amount of time. Can they ever? Oh well, that, that's great call. You're a hundred percent right. This is like, you know, once you live through the fire, you get you get ready. That that's that's crazy. Thanks, Jen. I really appreciate it. Um, gosh, I have so many calls. I might keep going here. Jack, Jack, what's going on? Yes. Um, I'm calling from an area called Mar- St. Marguerite Lac Masson in Quebec, right. which is about an hour and 15 minutes north of Montreal. And um, we are a, a community of about 4,000 people. Um, we have lost everything, telephone, power, and the Hydro-Quebec man who was doing the inspection this morning advised me that it could be up to two weeks before we get power back. Two weeks? Yes, because the, the, the road between me and the village, which is about an, uh, a 15-minute drive, there are too many transformers down and right. poles down to count. And when we drive between here and the village, which, as I said, was about 15 minutes, uh, many times we only have one side of the road open, which... The, our fire department opened up on Saturday night. They they cleared one side of the road so we could get back and forth. So how are you doing? Like, are you okay for food, hot water? Like, what are you doing? How are you getting by? Well, guess what I'm doing this afternoon. What's that? We're we're going out to stock up. <laughs> yeah. But we we've, we have been okay up to now. Um, I on my property, I I lost seven trees. Um, only one leaned on the house, but didn't do any damage. And I, I was uh, capable, okay, to to cut it down and um, and uh, cause no damage. But there are seven trees down, mostly uh, great big um, uh, older trees. Yeah. The property in front of me, I'm I'm on uh, one property, and then there's a, a road, a, a dirt road, and then there's a property on the lake. That property lost 13 trees. Well, Jack, I mean, first of all, I really appreciate you calling. And not only are more remote, and Jack, thank you, there are rural communities that are going to be out of power for a long time, 
But I just want to say I have a neighbor and 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 I'm not going to give any details. But obviously, for people who uh, have mobility issues or they have uh, they're going through, it's really tricky. Uh, they've lost power. They're trying to get upstairs, and normally they have a lift. Um, you know. So check on your neighbors. Check on your neighbors that need it. This is a moment to step up. I got 90 seconds. Uh, let me just see what I got coming up next. Mike, do you have something real quick? Uh, I, got, yeah, I got a I minute got here. Go for quick it. for you. Go. So my sister got married on Saturday in Cambridge, Ontario. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Whistle Bear Golf Course. I guess it's a popular spot to get married. But there was three weddings there. And the power went out around 12 or so in the afternoon, right when she was getting to take pictures before the wedding. The reception was at 2.30. After the reception, people will go um, up to have cocktail hour. There's no running water, nothing. It was absolutely wild. There was maybe 900 people in there that couldn't go to the washroom, no lights. It was insane. My poor mother and my poor sister were freaking out, like, oh, my God, my wedding. But... It ended up turning back on, thank God, around 6.30 or 7, and we ended up having a great night, but we're just lucky that it ended up turning back on. Well, first of all, uh, that's a good lesson for marriage. The power sometimes goes out, but it comes back on, so hang in there. (laughs) Good luck with them. Congratulations. I'm glad everybody's safe. Uh, Listen, I'm going to take a short break. We're going to do calls uh, coming up later in the show, Uh, but I've got uh, the former U.K. Prime Minister Tony Blair standing by next. Stay with us. Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The war in Ukraine continues to be brutal in the Donbass eastern region. Russia has escalated its attacks. They are uh, now trying to stop grain exports. It's a war on food. Remember the Holdemore. Remember the starving of Ukraine Under Stalin, the old playbook is back. It is brutal. It is vicious. It is indiscriminate. There's allegations of war crimes. There's actually been a conviction for war crimes. It's hard to understand what's going on. Now, the West is responding with sanctions. Uh, NATO is going to welcome Sweden and Finland if Turkey doesn't stop it. But how do you understand what the end game? How do you beat Putin? One man who knows a lot about Vladimir Putin is the former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, who led that country from 1997 to 2007. He met Vladimir Putin many times, especially when Vladimir Putin first assumed power. What does he think Putin's endgame should be? So I I asked him. I had the opportunity to have an exclusive interview with Tony Blair, and I said to him, you've known him since the year 2000. You met many times. Is the man the world sees now, he looks mad, the man you knew and the world knew back then? He certainly doesn't seem to be. Now, whether he was always like this, uh, it's hard to judge. But the person that I first met, as you say, in St. Petersburg, the Western-facing city of Russia, was someone who at that time wanted good relations with the West. Remember, at the time, we were the G8, not the G7. Russia was part, sat at that table along with the other um, you know, European countries, America, and so on. Um, Canada, of course. So at that point, he was very much oriented towards the West and wanted to reform the economy. He he changed over time, but 
In the times that I knew, he was, if he'd become much more brutal, he was also still very calculating. And the real anxiety people have about his behavior over Ukraine is that it's such a colossal miscalculation. I mean, ever to think that Ukraine or Ukrainians were going to accept being brought under the heel of a Putin dictatorship. Right. Uh, okay, two things. First, is he stable? I just want your view. There's a lot of people say he's mad. He's, in your view, is Vladimir Putin still stable, rational? I think he, he is still rational in the sense that he's, he's taking decisions and he is running this campaign. He's in charge of it. I think the invasion of Ukraine is not merely utterly appalling. It, it, it is, in one sense, an act of madness. Because, by the way, whatever happens, and I believe in the end, you know, this will be a situation where Ukraine emerges stronger. But whatever happens, Russia is going to emerge weaker. It must do. I mean, its, it's economy is, is, is going to be subject to huge problems. It's going to be isolated, certainly from the West in the world. Um, and you, you've got, I think, somewhere in the region of three and a half million people have left Russia. I mean, never mind the, the displacement of people right. in Ukraine. People have left Russia. And why? Because if you're, if you're a young person who wants to get connected to the world and you see your, your government, your leadership taking this decision, you realize this is not a place you're going to prosper. The question is, what's the way out? Uh, there's a, what's the end game from, let's go from the Western side. Uh, does he go to chemical weapons as uh, a source that I talked to in Ukraine, the former Canadian ambassador, the Ukrainian ambassador to Canada has told me the Ukrainians are expecting the use of chemical weapons. They are not ruling out the use of tactical nuclear weapons. If he's backed in a corner, what could Vladimir Putin do? Well, it's hard to judge. I mean, he could do that or this tactical nuclear weapons. I think it's unlikely because I can't tell you exactly what the response of the West would be, but it would be very significant. Um, so you just can't tell what, what, what he might do. But for the, for the West and for Ukraine, what is essential is that he shouldn't profit from the aggression. Now, I think in the first couple of weeks of this conflict, we might have been able to bring it to an end on a relatively straightforward basis. The problem now is Ukrainians will not agree to give up any of their territory or even push him back to where he was prior to the 24th of February. So it's going to be very, very difficult. Now, talking to people in Ukraine myself, I think Ukrainians feel quite confident of what they're doing militarily. I think they're going to carry on trying to push Russia back and out. And then it's really for them to decide whether there comes a, a moment when there's a window of opportunity for negotiation. Finland and Sweden have applied to join NATO, abandoning years of neutrality. Um, Russia has said this is a provocative move. How does this uh, redraw the map of Europe, and will this provoke Russia? Well, it's another miscalculation by Putin, isn't it? Because his action was supposed to weaken NATO, and it's actually strengthened it. And it's not surprising the Finns and the Swedes have changed their mind. I mean, what better, you know, what better reason could you have for changing your mind than seeing a completely peaceful country, UK, Ukraine, with a democratically elected government on the doorstep of Europe being invaded in this way and subject to this, this brutality? So it's not surprising. 
Look, he, he will claim it as a provocation, but it's an obvious act by Finland and Sweden to protect themselves for the future. And um, I think the NATO, in a, in a sense, has rediscovered it, its purpose. Uh, it's, it's, it's brought itself around to, to recognizing that there are values at stake and not just interests. And of course, Ukraine itself now wants to join the European Union. And I think Europe will offer a, a path to that European Union membership in, in a way probably it wouldn't have before the invasion. Two, two last things, Mr. Blair, while I've got you. You know uh, there are critics in Russia, but in other parts of the world that say the Western support of Ukraine and, and, and sanctions against Russia are hypocritical, given the fact that why is this different than both the U.S. and Britain when you were the prime minister and the invasion of Iraq back in 2003? You have answered many questions on this. I know about this. Um, does that, the invasion of Iraq, undermine the credibility of the West to criticize the actions of Vladimir Putin? Look, sometimes this, this, this argument is made, but I just think it's important we, we expose it for what it is, which is just a, a, an attempt to excuse Russian behavior. Iraq, the removal of Saddam Hussein, he was a dictator that started two regional wars responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths of his own people, including the use of chemical weapons. 12,000 people died in one day in, a, in Halabja. He was in breach of multiple United Nations resolutions around weapons of mass destruction, and he was a brutal dictator. The country was, I mean, whatever problems happened afterwards, the country was pleased to have him replaced with a democratic process. You can't compare that to the attempt to remove Zelensky, who's a democratic elected president of an entirely peaceful country that's never caused any problem to its region. Okay, last question for you. Should the West try to remove Vladimir Putin from power? And, and, and can he survive if this war goes badly? It's not, look, our task is a very simple one in respect of Ukraine. And you in, you in Canada, you know, I think you've got over a million people of Ukrainian descent living in Canada. So, you know, this is something that will matter greatly to you. Our job is to get him pushed back defeated over this aggression towards Ukraine and allow Ukrainians to decide their own future in their own way and do it peacefully. That's UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. The mayor of Ottawa on the storm joins us next. Lots to come. Stay with us. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. It has been—I—you I, want to say the storm of the century, but they happen so much. Tornadoes in 2018, ice storm, 1998. But the—I uh, don't know what we're going to call this—the sudden storm of uh, 2022. The Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson joins us. Uh, to give a sense of his city. First of all, Mayor, great to have you back on the program. Um, Thanks, Evan. I don't know what we're calling this thing, the great storm of 2022, but uh, give us a sense of the damage around uh, the city and the outlying areas. Yeah, there's lots of comparisons to the uh, the, the tornado we had, which was in 2018. 18, yeah. But it, it covered a, a, a relatively small part of the city. Uh, you know, it, it created a lot of devastation for those areas it was hit. But this particular storm hit every single part of the city, urban, rural, um, suburban Ottawa, east end, west end, south end. 
And we have now uh, restored power to 106,000 people, uh, and 70, about 73,000 are still left without power. So that's one of our great priorities, to get those people uh, hooked up to the hydro system. And in the interim, we've opened an uh, a number of uh, respite centers, 17 across the city, information available at our website, ottawa.ca, where people can get a, a meal, a snack, some water, recharge their devices, and uh, just, you know, see other people and, um, you know, as we work through this together. Are, is there going to be, what's the timeline for full service? Well, yesterday Hydro Ottawa was saying um, three to four days, so I think probably it's now down to two to three days. Uh, we like to under-promise and, uh, and over-deliver because it's not an exact science, as you can imagine, because they go into a neighbourhood, they think it's a pretty um, simple hookup, and then they realise there's you know trees that are intermingling with the, the wires and so on, and then they need our crews to come and clean the area out before they can actually even get into work. So. We've got, uh, you know, I talked to my, my friend and colleague, John Torrey. He's, he's sending out some uh, Hydro Toronto crews today. we got crews from New Brunswick here, some Americans, uh, some from Kingston. So, you know, people are, are lending us a hand, and we want to get that number of 74,000 down uh, to zero, uh, certainly at the very latest by the end of the week. Okay, speaking to the Ottawa Mayor, Jim Watson, about this, so you're getting other crews uh, coming in to help. Um a lot of folks are wondering why we don't have more uh, underground uh, hydro wires. I know, for example, folks, you don't, if you're across the country listening, Elgin Street's one of the main downtown streets. It was renovated. There's underground hydro there, where others it's not. I know there's a big cost difference, um, but if you amortize the cost over 50 or 60 or 100 years, why wouldn't we start installing more given ice storms and, and the weather? Like, doesn't it seem prudent? Well, you're right. It is a very expensive undertaking, you know, to hook up an individual. They would have to pay for that, uh, you know, basically from the street to the uh, the fuse box in your home, and, and people balk at that because it's expensive. And the other thing is the hardest hit area of the, the city, in an area in, called Pine Glens and Country Place, they have underground wires, and they're out every every single home in that neighborhood. So it Is that right? But is it easier to repair? Not necessarily, because you have to, you know, if the wires uh, snapped or burnt underground, you've got to dig it up. So, you know, there's no guarantee just because you, you say you want underground wires. A good example is, is the fact that the worst hit area in our city had underground wires, and it didn't help them. Interesting, because the research is that I know it's more expensive, but the, that, that obviously underground is significantly less prone to damage. Um, Mayor, I've also heard that one thing that's slowing down some areas is that the transformers and the technology are really old, and they're literally having trouble sourcing the technological material because out of date. Is that happening? Well, I, I can't speak for Hydro One, but certainly Ottawa Hydro spends an enormous amount of money on capital upgrades and and uh, modernizing their infrastructure. It's a very well-run organization. It's, it's owned by the taxpayers of Ottawa. Uh, there may be some challenges in other older parts of the province or with Hydro One I, that I'm not knowledgeable about, but I know that our Hydro Board, which is um, we're the sole shareholder at the city, does a very good job of putting enough dollars away to do proper infrastructure maintenance so that we minimize these kinds of disruptions on an ongoing basis. But all the infrastructure in the world uh, couldn't have stopped what happened. We saw, you know, over the course of the last couple of days, that storm came very quickly, yeah. went jet black, 
uh, massive wind, and you just saw the roots on some of these trees that were just ripped up and uh, you know tossed on someone else's roof. So we're very, very fortunate. Sadly, one person lost their life, but we're it's almost a miracle that we only had one death within the city of Ottawa, given the damage that was created. So the emergency system worked uh, by and large. I certainly got on my phone, I think, about 20 or 30 minutes before it started to come down. So it did give people some fighting chance to get out uh, of harm's way. Yeah, and I was saying to people when I got that, I thought, why are they using this system for a thunderstorm? Then you realize why, because it's very, very dangerous. Any idea yet? I mean, we're learning the human cost, which is tragic. Any idea of the economic cost, Mayor? Well, you know, just for the city of Ottawa, I've, I've just been using the, the the phrase millions and millions of dollars because we had to bring in a lot of our employees, public works folks, hydro, police, fire, paramedics, bylaw, um, all in on the long weekend, which, of course, is, you know, time, time and, and a half, half. Yeah. Uh, plus uh, all of the uh, extraordinary costs for overtime over the course of the last couple of days. But I've told our staff and our, my colleagues on council, who, by the way, are doing a very good job on the ground, uh, helping in their communities. We're not going to penny pinch now. Now's the time not to be the accountant, but to, to continue to on the recovery, get the money spent, record it, and then um, certainly we'll look to the federal and provincial governments for some assistance because this is something obviously you can't plan for, but it, it will be in the millions of dollars. And then, of course, the, the loss of productivity. There's still restaurants and, and um, shops that are not open because they don't have power. That's a loss to the economy and uh, people not being able to work because their stores are, are all blackened. Uh, so all of these things cost. And then, of course, you know, insurance doesn't cover everything. There's a cost and deductible, and there'll be lots of fights and squabbles with insurance companies at the same time. But, you know, these houses have to get repaired. You can't live with a, a tree stuck in your living room. So you, the city, speaking of Mayor Jim Watson from Ottawa, the city will be looking for both the province and the federal government to help uh, defray some of the enormous costs here. Yeah, they they have certain programs. I think the challenge is the threshold is pretty high. You know, smaller municipalities probably will end up getting more more assistance on a per capita basis simply because they don't have the capacity that we we do. You know, Ottawa has the second largest hydro unit after Toronto in the whole province of Ontario, and you know we had uh, the flooding in 2017, uh, tornado 2018, flooding in 2019. We're getting good at responding to these uh, crises. We, we wish we didn't have to <clears throat> to have them, but um, you know they are a cost to the taxpayers. And when we had the flooding, the federal government was very helpful bringing in the army to help sandbag, and that was a big morale booster as well to the people in in different parts of the city along the Ottawa River. But none now. There's no you're not no state of emergency, no army. No, no, that's not right. necessary. People ask, why aren't you declaring a state of emergency? It wouldn't do any difference. It really allows us to go around the procurement bylaw that we, if we need equipment and supplies, we don't have to go out for three tenders and so on. But we don't need that. We have the equipment. We have the, the resources. Um, and, you know, we're, we're trying to get, we have about three dozen roads that are still blocked. And hopefully we'll see that number come down substantially today and tomorrow because there's wires on, you know, Maryville Road and our, our west end of the city, trees, tree, you know, debris and so on that just flew all over the place, uh, blocking access to certain roads. I mean, Mayor, just got a minute. You just think this stuff, floods, tornadoes, um, now this kind of storm, you just think, do we have to reconsider the resiliency programs for cities? Yeah, no question about that. We'll do, obviously, like every other municipality, a post-mortem and what went well and what didn't go so well. I know the, the Prime Minister talked a lot about during the last election campaign, you know, the resiliency of infrastructure. You know, you can't have the kind of infrastructure 30 years ago with climate change challenges that we're facing today. And with that 
comes additional costs. So, you know, that's where we have to sit down with our partners at the two other orders of government and work with them because mm-hmm. you know, we found for a good example is during the flooding, you know, we put uh, additional money into berms and dikes along the Ottawa River. It saved dozens of houses in the Britannia Village area that I know you know about, um, uh, Evan, in the west end of the city. So that cost a lot of money, but it saved a lot of houses. You got to prepare. I got to tell you because it's coming. Um, Mayor Jim Watson from uh, Ottawa. Great to have you back on the program. Talking about just sadly a city that's just been battered by all sorts of incidents, and now another one. Thank you, sir. All right, my pleasure. Take care. That's Jim Watson. Um, let me do one more round of call. I got so many extraordinary texts from seven ten ten or one eight five five six three three ten ten about how you're dealing with the aftermath of the storm. What happened to you? Like. I got to read you some of these texts and and I'll take more of your calls as I promised you I would. 1-855-633-1010. Let me know how you're coping with the storm and what happened to you next. Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon show. We are back. I got to tell you, look, I still have no power. Tens and tens of thousands of people across Ontario and Quebec have no power. Uh, The storm was frightening. I want to hear your stories because, you know, we share this conversation every day. And, you know, when we when our fellow Canadians in B.C. were dealing with the floods out there, we spent a lot of time on that. We always do, because I listen, we cover so many politics on this program. And we cover so much crap in terms of the divisions. But Canada comes together uh, when we need it. And it reminds us. It's a tap on the shoulder. We're good people. Doesn't matter if you're conservative, liberal, NDP, green. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how you vote. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what your age is. All those things that are pitted against each other too often by, frankly, too many political leaders, they disappear We are neighbors. We are Canadians. We are brothers and sisters. And it never shows up more than in in a crisis, Uh, whether it's a storm, a winter storm, a summer storm, a tornado, a flood. Canadians are at their best. And so tell me your story, 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Because I'm telling you, uh, we have challenges ahead. There are divisions ahead, and we're going to deal with one in a minute in Quebec with this Bill 96, but or Bill 98, but hang on there. I want to tell you a story that will bring us together. Sorry, Bill, did I say 98? Bill 96. Hi, Evan. It was one of the scariest moments of my life. The storm came out of nowhere. We were at our cottage in Ompa near Lanark, and we did not get the emergency notification. We're a small cabin in the woods on stilts with no basement. I put my kids in the pantry. As I felt it was the uh, location away from the windows, safest. We truly thought it was a tornado and it was heading straight towards us. The trees were falling one by one. It blew our super, super heavy Muskoka chairs into the lake. It ripped the boat off the dock. Miraculous, none of the trees fell in the cottage. Divine intervention. It was terrifying. Evan and I... Uh, Just about to make a 30-minute walk home from a restaurant in Constance Bay. I saw the dark clouds... Heard some thunder, thought, eh, I can make it. 
Thank goodness the emergency alert went off on my phone. I went back and I took cover. Without it, I would have been alone in a dirt road in a storm surrounded by forests and nowhere to go, says Lori. Man. Just those little decisions, right, Lori? It's just those little decisions. Um, and uh, Text me your storm story, one 633 or, or 71010. Let me read you more. Evan, are you going to get a generator after this? Because this is going to become more common. I said this, my wife and I um, priced out generators last night. There's going to be a run on generators. Um, yeah. I've been, this has been, I have been delaying my generator buy for like eight years. And, and, and it's stupid. And I wish I had the generator and it's a great call. I think there's going to be a run on generators. Evan, my husband's emergency spinal surgery was canceled tomorrow because Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto is overloaded with patients from the storm, but it's rescheduled. I hope he's okay. Evan, I have a 35-kilowatt generator. I can power several homes. I trim trees near my power lines. I have 60-foot maples. If you're not prepared, it's on you. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. Hi, Ev. Uh, of the hydro line, transformer placement's easier. If your area is in a floodplain, then they shouldn't be buried. Says from London. Yeah, fair. Mike's got a joke from Bowmanville. Hey, Mike, if you're okay, that's great. Evan, I complained when my husband bought a dual fuel generator, gas or propane. He brought it for dry camping. So, and we don't make noise, so it's usually solar panels. So generator has just been sitting there. Also complained about the extension cords we have. Took me an hour to roll them up. I think I'll start complaining now, says Barb in Stittsville. Thank you, Barb. Yeah. Pina in Quebec, Lower Laurentians. What's up? It was a, a rough, long weekend, to say the least. I lost power at 4.30 on Saturday. I didn't get it back until 1.30 yesterday afternoon. And I'd been running a small generator from then until 1.30 yesterday, and it cost me $120 in fuel to do it just to save my food in my fridges. Worth it, though, right? Worth it, yes. I got it for a small generator from my parents, but half of my area is still without power. And if you go up to Moran Heights and St. Sever, they're saying it's going to be at least another week or two before they get A week or two? Oh, okay. So just so folks know, um, this is sort of a... if uh, St. Sever is eastern part of Quebec, um, <clears throat> sort of far from Gatineau. Wait, what, about 45 minutes? We're, we're about... My area is about an hour north of Montreal, so more heights in St. Sever would be about an hour and a half, give or take. Hour and a half, yeah, okay. Well, well, you're okay though, right? And and when will you get power back? Uh, are you good? You just got it back. I just got it back yesterday afternoon. Um, I didn't have any damage to my property. Luckily, I did have a, a fairly massive tree come down on my dock at the lake, so it took me and my father about two or three hours to clear the tree, cut it up, and haul it all off. But other than that, we didn't have any damage to our property. We got lucky with that. But a lot of other people lost their houses or vehicles or entire. Yeah, entire property. Pina, thanks for that. I'm glad you're okay. Yeah, it, crazy. Um, I just got a great uh, text. I was walking my dog. A tree fell on my dog, but thanks to some good Samaritans, they helped. Uh, uh, it's the animals, right? You, you, you see the farms? Breaks your heart. My dog, Puddle, like as soon as the thunder goes, Puddle is just shivering. It absolutely hates the thunder. And just just goes to the basement. Just not a happy dog. Puzzle's a big dog, right? But she's getting old. 
half lab, half St. Bernard, and Pudsey is scared of that. And you just think of those pooches and the animals. Cat didn't seem to mind. Evan, I was at a wedding in Rockport in the Thousand Islands. Power went out two hours before the ceremony, but we had gas stoves, Bluetooth speakers. We could eat and dance, says Nathan in Montreal. Thanks, Nathan. That's great. There's a wedding you'll never forget. There's a wedding you'll absolutely never forget, right? I just wonder, I want to go back to what one of our our, our, um, texters at 71010 said. It's on you if you're not prepared. So so there is that. Look, you're not going to be prepared for everything in life. But are we in the place where you got to be more prepared? Look, if you don't live in a downtown city uh, area, most people are prepared. Look, there's a lot more self-reliance when there's folks that live outside of cities. People have their chainsaws because they cannot rely on systems. There is a self-reliance. And in a crisis, that self-reliance matters. And in a crisis, it's not just yourself. It's community reliance. People help each other out. And maybe that's going to become a little more um, part of our lives now. Evan, we built our house in 20, 2003, wired essential circuits to a transfer panel for a generator, had a natural gas outlet installed as well. Didn't purchase a generator till the ice storm before uh, Christmas 2014. Then we got one for 70 hours without power. Have since converted it to natural gas. We're all set for this weekend when the power is off for 27 hours. Yeah, a buddy of mine has a generator with natural gas and has been very helpful to us. Um, we, we dropped off some freezer food there. They've been great. Yeah. And they renovated their house and they put in a natural gas generator and they've been fine. Generators are the future. Evan, I bought a generator a few years ago, enough to power the furnace in the winter and fridges in the summer. Also have a 20 to 50 liters of gas on hand anytime. And I've needed it once in five years. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's the future. We're, we're, we're going to get that. I'll, I'll read one more. Um, someone didn't get the alert. They were in a park and we just were grocery shopping. They had to run in. This is Oakville. Had no idea how bad it was. Those alerts are good. I think we got to take those, take those seriously, as you heard the mayor of Ottawa talk about, because it gives you a warning. All right, uh, let's take a break from the storm. Shelter from the storm, as uh, Bob Dylan would say, who turns 81 today, Bob Dylan. Um, look, Bill 96 is a massive language reform, and it's going to pass in Quebec. It is unbelievably controversial. Many minority groups, many Anglophones say this is an attack on Anglos. But I'm going to talk to a representative of the government there that says that's wrong. Wait till you hear this. You need to hear this if you're in Quebec or if you're not in Quebec. This matters. Next. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. Now more from the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's going to pass. The CAC, the Coalition Avenue Quebec, the government in Quebec will pass Bill 96. They're going to do it. Even though there's protests and criticisms, this is an update on Bill 101. This is the language wars that are back in Quebec. The proposed legislation would affirm that Quebec is the official language of Quebec, toughen up portions of the existing charter, the Bill 101, 
It will make French more prominent in health, justice, workplace, and schools, and strengthen the language. But critics say it limits access to health care, impacts the hope for many people to uh, navigate the judicial system, and is an attack on Anglos. Is it? I asked Christopher Skeet, the MNA and the parliamentary assistant to the Quebec premier, I said, if your government is so confident this bill doesn't violate anyone's rights, why are you using the notwithstanding clause, which suspends people's ability to challenge their right? Well, the, the notwithstanding clause isn't this all-encompassing thing that lets you do whatever you want. It's very specific in its application, in its scope, and in well, as well as its duration. So it's not this you know, mega sword that can be used for all instances. But in the past, what history has taught us is Bill 101 in 1977 was um, diluted following numerous court decisions, and that restrains our ability to protect French in Quebec. So we want to send a message to the judicial branch telling them that Bill 96 is important to the legislature, and we're hoping that uh, they'll listen to us. But, but it also means we want to affirm the right of French, but we do not want anyone to, char- to, to challenge it. We don't want anyone to have the right to challenge it if they see, as many do, that it infringes upon minority rights. So if you're so confident it won't infringe on minority rights, why use that sledgehammer in the first place? Well, we've had this discussion before on uh, numerous times when I've been on the show, having this balance between collective rights and individual rights. If we want to be serious about protecting French in North America, I think in this juncture, we have to consider the importance of a collective right to continue to speak French in Quebec. And we want to make sure that we send that message to the judicial branch, telling them that this is important to us and it's something that we're really committed to. And again, as I said, the notwithstanding clause isn't something that is, uh, you know, all powerful and you know completely exempts everybody from all kinds of rights. Okay, but hang on. Uh, I, I, let's not avoid. Let's talk about the use of power and the language police and the search and seizure issue in the bill. The law says small businesses with now 25 or more employees must be subjected to this law. It used to be 50, so now it's down to 25. The bill gives the Office de la Langue Française the ability to perform warrantless searches and seizures to ensure businesses follow the law. Now, that could mean, for example, a healthcare professional could have private and sensitive information seized and searched without a warrant. That's an enormous power of the state. Why give that power over? Well, first off, in healthcare, um, the English community and uh, various other minorities are exempt. So Bill 96 does not touch uh, healthcare in that way when it's given to the patient directly. On the other side, though, um, you know, the Office of la Langue Française is an administrative body. They, too, are limited in their scope and application. For instance, a, a, an inspector can't go in and start reading uh, patient-client uh, privilege or lawyer-client privilege because that would be outside of their scope. Other laws in Quebec guarantee uh, people's right to privacy. Those laws are not suspended. But they can still doing, go, they still have the right to search and seize without a warrant. Why, why so give them have, that law to ensure compliance? They have the power to search and seize in line with their mandate, which is to ensure that the workplace is a French workplace. Outside of that would be to supersede their their scope. But how do we? But but the question is that the lines are fuzzy. How do they ensure compliance? For example, can they get inside a computer? The answer, when you read the law, would say, yeah, they could. They could yeah. look at a computer. So Bill 96 creates a new right, a new right for francophones to work and live in French in Quebec. Now, if a person were to have a complaint saying, you know, in my workplace, I can't work 
uh, in French, then the inspector would have the right to say, well, hey, are, are you guys running, I don't know, Microsoft Office Word in French? Are you guys running, but I don't know, simply accounting in that, French? But, but that's I what we're doing. But it's a competing right. But you're saying, oh, in order to do that, you're giving that inspector the right to search and seize without a warrant, simply based on the complaint. Is that supposed to give anyone comfort? A, a complaint can get a, uh, a government official in to search and seize equipment in your office based on a, a complaint about English? So that means that you're not fully understanding the limited scope that the Office de la Langue Française has. As an administrative body, they can only act within the scope of their mandate. So they're not searching and seizing for any other purpose other than to uh, ascertain whether or not there's a violation of the right to work in French. Anything else is completely outside of their scope, and a judge would throw that out if ever they abuse that right. Okay, well, well, well the, the whole bill right now is about the interpretation and the limits of interpretation and the rights. And that has been the very issue on health care. The main concern from Anglophone Quebecers and others is that Bill 96 will limit their access to health care because providers will be obligated to speak with patients in French. Okay, and I want to dig in, but there is an exemption, and I want, you to, I want to read it to our viewers. The bill says, quote, an agency of the civil administration may depart from the French requirement by using another language in addition to French in its written documents, and here's the key, where health, public safety, or the principles of natural justice require. You and I both know that many legal scholars, including the dean of the McGill Law School, have said this is not a blanket uh, exemption, that the, there could be a very limited interpretation of the word health and so the exemption barely applies. Well, that means that you're ignoring the fact that in our Health Care Act, we have a provision in Section 15 that says that um, English-speaking Quebecers have a right to, to health care in their language. And it also, the principle of national justice actually means, you know, uh, simply put, the duty to be uh, objective and fair. Now, any judge would throw out any exaggeration of that law because it is the law of the land. It is something that the government cannot remove uh, but, from your but if right. it's so clear, and, but again, if it's so, you, you and I both know, if it's so clear, does it include mental health? The, the Coalition for uh, Quality Health and Social Services, they rep 700 doctors, say it's so confusing that they want a blanket exemption as well. Even people in the medical uh, uh, world don't understand this. And I think this is where we get into the levels of confidence that certain communities have with the government. I think it's sad that, that these people are essentially asking the government to put into law the fact that we're not going to let, I don't know, uh, you know, um, immigrants or, or people who are tourists die in the hallways of our hospitals because they're not speaking to us in French. I think the duties of government are to protect their people. Why so trust the government? Like, the idea that we, oh, trust the government to do it, they should read the law. If your government has no intention of restricting access to English health services, English social services, there is a simple issue remove those two areas from the bill. If you did that, if there's no attempt to restrict, what's the point in having them in the bill? Will you remove well, them from uh, the bill? You, you just read the paragraph that says that it's not, it's not subject to that. So I don't know how we can be more clear other than the fact that we put it in our healthcare law, which also says that English-speaking Quebecers are exempt from it. So I think what we're really talking about here is a trust. I think people here um, that, that, are, that are bringing these issues up have a, a fundamental trust issue with the government, and that's less to do with legal than it is to do about the relationship but, but, that English speakers have with their government. Trust, trust is important, but tr look, the law is the law. Let's talk about the exemption. Your, your government says for English language government services, um, 
is restricted to historic Anglos. So let's say someone arrives from New Zealand. They have six months to learn French. Then they have to deal in, the, in French only. Um, they, so why don't you tell us, why restrict this to historic Anglos? And can you define what an historic Anglo really is? Actually, Bill 101 already defines what a historic Anglo is. But in the scenario that you're given, again, if we use the logical extension of your argument, we would allow Japanese tourists to die in the hallways of our hospitals. Of course not. The reality is, if you speak English, the, the language of English is not a barrier to health care. This is the kind of thing I'm trying to tell you, that Section 15 of the Health Care Act doesn't say historic angles. It, has, it says English-speaking Quebecers. So Quebecers who are speaking English are not, uh, ex are not within the scope of language laws. So to say so is just, is just but, disingenuous, and it goes contrary to the way that we've been doing business in Quebec. So trust the government. That's Christopher Skeet. He's a parliamentary assistant to the Quebec Premier. That law is going to pass. Again, they're going to use the notwithstanding clause, meaning we know this violates the charter. We don't care. We want it anyway. So you'll have no recourse if you think your rights are violated. If it's a charter violation. Search and seizure issues. This is a big deal. It is going to pass this week. You should pay attention to that. Bill 96 is a big thing. So that's Christopher Skeet. I'd love to know if you're living in Quebec or outside of it. Uh, text me your thoughts on 96 at 71010. But we have, we're going to end our show with an incredible fishing story. Yes, a fishing story next. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the big show, everybody. Listen, we always we always end the show with something that I think should inspire us, change us. And I, the Globe and Mail had this profile about a week ago of these two guys named Matt Taylor and John Clip. So credit to the Globe. I hadn't heard about this. They are chefs, and they founded, they're co-founders of something called Affinity Fish. And you think, do I need a fish story? You do. Because everyone thinks, you know, the best fish is from Japan. And here we are, blessed with more fresh water than any country in the world, and the Great Lakes. And Matt and John thought, why the hell do Canadians not appreciate what we've got in our own backyards? And they have done something extraordinary. They, they've gone out basically... Right from hook to table to to tell us a fish story that I think is very inspiring. And what a pleasure, Matt Taylor and John Clip, to have you both on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us. Okay, I'm Matt. I'm going to start with you. Give, give us a sense of how what is Affinity Fish. So so give people the kind of let's hook them into this thing because it's kind of an amazing story here. What is it that you do that's different than than other places? All right. So yeah, the goal of Affinity Fish is to provide Canadians with uh, a higher quality of fish and seafood through careful handling, uh, minimizing animal suffering, prioritizing sustainable fishing practices from uh, lake to restaurant and end consumer. Okay, which sounds, which is great. And, and l l let me go to you, um, Mr. Clip, uh, John. Yeah. Give, give me a second, because you're, you're both chefs. Uh, 
there's more to that. So what does that mean in kind of re- like that sounds like, oh, great, sustainable fishing and we'll pay. That's great. But right. it, what does it yeah. actually mean? Well, um, you know, we were trying to solve a problem. Um, both Matt and I had been working as chefs for many years in, uh, in Toronto and in Japan, and we had access to incredible fish, but we couldn't figure out why none of it was local. So um, Affinity Fish, which we started about two years ago, has kind of been our uh, foray into answering that question and uh, trying to you know, supply uh, Canadians with, with the best possible local fish. Um, people, yeah. think, people think when they think, okay, Canadian fish, yeah, I fish for trout, I have some pickerel. Um, but give us a sense, John, about what kind of fish is out there. I don't think people realize the catch that's going on in the Great Lakes. It's it's incredible. We're so lucky to be right in the middle of the Great Lakes region and have all this uh, fresh water around us. Um, and there's there's you know uh, we catch throughout the year uh, twelve to fifteen different species of fish. Only maybe two or three of them have been commercially available. Like you said, you know there's trout, there's pickerel, but um, those aren't even our favorite fish. There's all these all these species of fish. There's uh, you know white perch, yellow perch, uh, sheep's head, burbot. Uh, you know, like I said, 12 or 15 different... Hold on, tell species. us a sheep's head burbot. I've never heard of those. What are those? Heard of them, right? <laughs> fantastic fish. Uh, a sheep's head or a freshwater drum is a lot like, uh, in many ways, it's a lot like uh, the snapper, the grouper that we see in the ocean. Similar, very easy to cook, versatile, delicious. Nobody knows about it. Um, and, you know, we're, we're super uh, proud to be uh, to be getting it into restaurants and, and home consumers' kitchens as well. That's crazy. Matt, what other kinds of fish? Like, there are people listening. I'm speaking to Matt Taylor mm-hmm. and John Clip of Affinity Fish. I want to go yeah. over some of these species because, again, people don't know them and they're like, ooh, like, yeah. what, why not? Maybe they're terrible to eat. But what else? What are you catching and well, then gener- serving that people don't know that's actually delicious? So generally, most of the fisher folk that we work with, they do a, a technique of fishing called gill netting. And basically what that does is it's inevitably, inevitably going to have bycatch species that are going to come up in the nets. And unfortunately, most of these fish don't have actual markets for them. So people kind of just throw them back, whether they're alive or dead, which is, you know, super sad. Um, but those are always the fish that we're most interested in. And, and we're always, because we're chefs first, it's kind of easy for us to kind of test our own product and cook it for dinners and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of people just kind of think of fish as pan fried in butter and a little bit of lemon on top. But for us, you know, if it's steaming it or poaching it in oil or uh, deep frying it or, you know, all these different techniques that you can do and dry aging it and grilling it over embers. Um, you can really bring out a different kind of sense to the fish and different species and stuff like that. Like the burbot was one of the specific ones that, you know, it's a very kind of a, kind of an uglier fish. It's a little bit of a, a bottom feeder, but it's become one of our favorite fish to, to work with. They have these beautiful livers uh, that we've actually cooked very similar to monkfish as the way that they do it in Japan. And they've become one of our biggest products actually. Wow. Like the other day, my, my wife who doesn't eat meat, she eats fish. We had some crappy, which is like a pan fish, right? Crappy's delicious. Yeah. Crappy is unbelievable. Unbelievable! It's mm-hmm. it's just fantastic. It's like folks. It's like a like a I don't know, like, almost like a like a sunfish, like a sunfish. Yeah, it's, and it's yeah. but it was unbelievable. Yeah, very delicious fish. They're actually quite quite fatty for how small the fish is. Um, so it has a lot of natural oils to it, and it's actually that's why it is so delicious. Okay, so you guys are in your twenties, uh, John. The the other thing you do is you're you're actually going out with the fisher. Oh, the, the fishermen out there, like who are you working with? Because I think that's also the good part. You're not just sort of waiting for it to come to the market. You're going out into the lake. Yeah, we're, we're really lucky to be working with some amazing um, 
fishing operations on a lot of the Great Lakes, on, on Huron, on Erie, on Lake Ontario as well. Um, two of the first boats that we started working with were both Indigenous-run uh, businesses and, and fisher folk uh, out of Lake Huron. And um, yeah, I mean, it made sense for us to start at the beginning. A lot of the problems with kind of commercially or conventionally sourced fish has to do with handling. Um, a lot of these fish in the rivers and the lakes and the oceans are pristine. They're wonderful, but they don't end up that way uh, when the, by the time they get to the supermarket. So um, most of the issue with uh, with fish, freshwater or saltwater, in North America is is the handling. So we really had to start from the very beginning, and that meant going out on the boats, working with the fisher folk. You guys, I, this is so cool. Okay, I got just two minutes. What, what the big myth is that you know fish from the Great Lakes is, is not as good as you know. Let's go to a really good. Let's spl- splurge, honey. We're gonna go to sushi. You guys have both trained in Japanese cuisine, Matt. Like, are, is is the proof here that in our own backyard we have fish that could rival fishing people might have never heard of that can rival the best fish in the world? Absolutely. I mean, I think what John was trying uh, trying to get to is that you know it, it's. The, the, the technique is uh, what happens to the fish as soon as it's killed or as soon as it comes out of the water is so, so, so important. And I think it's just uh, because the industry is so geared towards commoditization of fish and, and treating it like a commodity, like, a, you know, selling it in tons rather than fish by fish, I think is the biggest reason why people just kind of mistreat these animals and why it doesn't actually, you know, show through to the towards the end. Whereas in Japan and other countries like that that have been doing it for thousands of years, they, they, they really... Uh, have a lot of reverence for each individual fish and they treat each individual fish with such care. And that's why they talk about sashimi grade or sushi grade fish. Like that can be possible in Canada. Okay, John, I got like 30 seconds. If I walked in and you said, these are three things you got to try real quick that that you've never had before that will change your perception. What is it, John? Uh, The burbot for sure. The burbot liver. Um, Matt worked on that recipe. He, uh, he basically poaches it in, um, sake, soy sauce, and Japanese mirin. It's wow. incredible. It's uh, not unlike foie gras or not unlike monkfish liver. Holy Super God. rich, creamy, wonderful from a fish that, you know, has no commercial value or had no commercial value until now. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, the sheep's head. Um, uh, okay, hold on, hold on. I got yeah. so the sheep's head. Yeah. Okay, hold on. I want. Where can they go? People <laughs> chat because I'm running out of time and I could do this all sure. day. Matt Taylor and John Clip. Folks, please check out Affinity Fish. These are the two young co-founders. They're, they're doing incredible work. Thanks, guys. It's so inspirational. Try their stuff.